Welcome to Breaking and Entering, the podcast series which highlights outstanding career paths within the asset management industry. I'm Daniel Ruiz, investment reporter for Citywise Selector in London, and today I am joined by Tom Hancock, partner at GMO and head of the company's Focus Equity team. Aside from his managerial role, he also oversees two strategies as a portfolio manager. Although he's worked at the Boston-based asset manager for the past 27 years, that's most of his professional career, prior to joining the company, he was a research scientist and software engineer for two of the biggest technological companies out there. As anyone, he holds a PhD in computer science from Harvard University and bachelor's and master's degrees in science from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. The birth of uh, modern computer computing science dates back to the 1970s and many point to the world's first general microprocessor, the Intel 4004, which came out in November 1971, as the start of things that would eventually make it possible for us to do this podcast just the way we are doing it right now. Tom is in Boston and I'm sitting in Citywise Studio 2 in London. And this is all being recorded online and uploaded to the cloud just as we speak. Tom probably was a teenager when the first Star Wars movie was released in 1977. And for the purpose of this introduction, I'm going to believe that he was also taken to watch A Space Odyssey as a kid. Tom, if we go back in time to the late 60s, can we picture a little Tom kneeling in front of the TV set watching how amazing it was to see humanity set foot on the moon? Um, yeah, I actually remember that. Little Tommy, I think it was at the time, um, <laughs> watching, a, maybe it was my kindergarten or first grade class. We were all gathered together. I didn't, I didn't really know what it was, frankly. I don't think they explained it very well. But I remember, um, that's one thing I remember about those little desks. The other thing I remember is getting under them for uh, bomb uh, scares. So... Um, it was a, a different time. All that lyrical intro was only intended to ask you a very simple question. What drew you to computer science and were you in any way influenced by the science fiction boom that was about to explode in the 80s? Yeah, when I was an um, adolescent teenager, I did read some science fiction, but I would say I was drawn more to it just because at that time, when I was in high school, was when the personal computer, the Apple II, the TRS-80, or as we call it at the time, the Trash-80, um, were available. So it was kind of dem democratizing the ability to like play around on computers. Uh, and I had a high school teacher who taught a course in, I think it was computer math, where I was introduced to programming. And I just loved it as like a puzzle-solving thing. It was like a game to me to do it. So it was less about the science fiction aspect of it and Star Wars. I think I saw Star Wars like three times, which put me in the very low number for my friend group. So um, a fan, but it wasn't so much that. But how was uh, to be a teenager in the 70s and imagine uh, what science could be capable of when, for instance, and this one is for pop quizzes, it was only in 1972 when the number of color TV sets sold in the U.S. exceeded black and white sales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember watching black and white TV. Um, you know, maybe I lacked imagination. I'm not sure. I was trying to rack my brain for what I thought computers would turn into in the future at the time. And I think I thought it was doing more of the same thing, which was business applications and games, basically. The, the idea that we'd be doing something like this 
and the science fiction, like it just seemed like fiction. I guess the one the one thing about computers that really haunted people of that era was really 2001 and and Hal and uh, you know the computer is a sinister force. So that idea that there's a danger to big tech has certainly been around for a very long time. Do you think he's comparable now to what a, a teenager from nowadays can sort of think of science? I mean, I think a teenager from nowadays has seen a lot more progress in their lifetimes, I would imagine, is extrapolating a lot uh, more. Uh, now, I have a, not a teenager, I have a 10-year-old myself, and her main interest is Roblox, and I don't, she doesn't seem like much of a visionary on the future of computing, but maybe I'm not giving her, her credit yet. But it's so much part of her life in a way that you know, really nothing was for me at the time. Mm-hmm. We're going to jump on the uh, Situai DeLorean uh, and press fast forward for a decade uh, to get to August 12th, uh, 1981. That's the date when the first IBM computer, the IBM model 5150, was first released. That is the same year in which Tom started his bachelor's degree in computer science. Um, Tom, take us back to that point in your life. How was the campus? Mm -hmm. What did you study? What was the daily routine? I made a decision to study computer science. It wasn't because I thought computers were the most interesting thing in the world or they were going to you know, have this huge growth trajectory. It's really more like I liked computer programming. I liked other things, but it seemed like the one that I would like actually doing professionally as opposed to, say, history that I have to read about but didn't like as a profession. So that's, that's what led me to be pretty firm in my interest in computer science, another comment is my parents both came from a, a liberal arts background. My father is a philosophy professor and my mother uh, did English literature. So um, that doing anything technical was a little bit out of the norm. And my kind of pathetic form of teenage rebellion was I went to an engineering school, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, um, which is in upstate New York, a very cold place. It's a, a city somewhere near Albany, a couple hundred miles north of New York City. It was as an engineering school, it's kind of amazing because that's, as we've said, it's when computers were really starting to take off um, in some mass market way. So about a third of the entering freshmen were computer science majors, electrical engineering majors, computer systems engineering majors. There were so many people who were also doing that. Um, that was that was kind of eye-opening. At that point, and I'm aware that this can sort of sound like an intergenerational question, but what was considered to be still unbelievable in terms of computer science? When I first started writing computer programs in high school, I actually still used, in at least one case, these punch cards. I don't know if people even remember those, but they were the, the so-called IBM cards are these rectangular pieces of paper that you punched little holes into and you had a stack of a thousand of them and you and you put them through a card reader and woe betide anyone who dropped them on the on the floor because then they'd never get their computer program back um, so when we went to um, these sort of interactive terminals like you know think computers today but not with all the visual stuff it's more like the dos command prompt even that was like wow that's amazing i can type stuff in and get stuff back Another thing that was really amazing was just the earliest forms of email, like sending something at one computer to your friend who was sitting on the other side of the computer lab and getting a little message pop up. That seemed really cool. At that time, did you think computer science would, I mean, this is sort of going back to the question you said we, we, you sort of answered before, but kind of more in deep. Um, did you think that computer science would develop as fast as it has done? Uh, or now that the time has passed, do you think that there's been a sort of that natural path of progress which 
has naturally taken us to where we are now. Uh, so no, I don't. I would not have predicted that computers would become so ubiquitous, and everybody's job almost would be, um, you know, have computers embedded so so deeply in it. I th- I think I thought of it, um, frankly, a little bit more of a niche craft. Um, and again, the sort of game playing, puzzle solving aspect of it was what I really liked. Um, but yeah, some of the applications that we do today, um, I, I would never have imagined. So is in 1985, after finishing his bachelor's and master's, Tom joins IBM as a software engineer, where he remains for the following two years. Tom, I imagine that IBM was probably the place to be mm-hmm. if uh, one had studied computer science. How was it? Yeah, it was, it was kind of the place to be. They were on top of the world as... Um, the PC had come out a, a few years earlier. I'd actually um, done a summer job down in Boca Raton in Florida, which is where IBM had had that project. Um, where I worked um, for the couple of years was in Poughkeepsie, also in upstate New York, where I worked in um, an element of the software that went into the mainframe computers that were kind of their bread and butter, you know, the, the giant computers still have them, but the giant computers that sort of run big databases in banks uh, and airline reservation systems and so forth. Uh, I learned about like big industrial scale computer software. And even at that point, IBM had this code that had been around for 20 years. And a lot of what being a software engineer was about was kind of reading through this giant pile of old code to figure out the one or two things you had to change, changing them. So you'd, you'd produce very few actual new lines of code in a month. It was all kind of this archaeological um, expertise. I'm a complete ignorant in the field, but has code changed a lot since then? Uh, yeah, well, one of the big things that's changed is just the level of specificity that you have to instruct the computer to do something. So not at IBM, but before then I'd, I'd use uh, assembler language programming where you're, you, you have to move move a variable from one place into a centralized accumulator to add something to then move it back to another variable. Now there's like such levels of abstraction above that. It's languages built on languages built on languages. And um, I think people don't really know much anymore about how the underlying computer works, the hardware works, and then you kind of needed to. Uh, Largely just time passed and it evolved, the ecosystem evolved in large because computers have become so much more efficient you don't need to squeeze every little bit of efficiency out of them. You can, you, you know, your time as a programmer is more valuable than the computer's time running. Um, so after that, Tom goes back to university to widen his computer science studies with a PhD in Harvard University from uh, 1987 to 1992. During those years, Tom could have crossed paths with economic science uh, Nobel Memorial Prize winners Michael Kramer, or Jim Balsili, former CEO of Research in Motion, the original developer of uh, the recently defunct BlackBerry. Or even Rage Against the Machine, guitarist Tom Morello, uh, who's got a Bachelor's of Arts in Harvard. No, well, it's reasonably big. And as a grad school, I tend to only inter- grad student, I tend to only interact with people who would take classes that I was a, a teaching fellow for. If any of those people took, uh, took one of the classes I I sadly missed out about it. I actually didn't know about Rage and Machine. That was a big miss on my part. In grad school, you kind of meet people in your department. And I was at this broad, great institution. They met people in my department and in the MIT department. <laughs> um, but it was a great, it was a great time. 
And, and aside from that, I mean, there's a whole mystique about Harvard. How was the environment? And, and most importantly, what did you learn that you hadn't? So you're right about the Harvard mystique. Like it's a great place and you meet lots of interesting people. I was fortunate enough actually to be in a graduate student dorm my first year, which is fortunate. I kind of stopped doing computer programming. I had a joke was like I had friends who were in the physics department and they would write computer code all the time. And I would try to prove, I, this is also more math that I did is prove statement um, things. The, the subfield of computer science I was in, and as one goes into graduate school, one narrows and narrows and narrows and becomes an expert in a very small little thing. Uh, my subfield was a very sleepy uh, discipline called machine learning, um, which has like suddenly expanded over the last couple of years. It was a very niche area in 90, 1992 when I was working on it. Um, and as I say, theoretical, that sort of meant proving things about what kind of learning problems could be solved, what what could not. Say a lot of the computers, because computer science was a new field, a lot of the professors came from a math background. Um, if you're cynical, they're kind of math PhDs and faculty who realize there's a lot better grant money in computer science. So my peers, um, the rigor around kind of mathematical proof, I think is an important skill set to develop, but these were more softer skills than actual te hard technical ones. And why machine learning? Uh, so it was a bit of an accident. Uh, there, at the time, machine learning had had some success. Uh, practically, there's a good a program that was successful playing backgammon. and there are some successes at medical diagnosis where you'd see a patient's symptoms and decide where they were um, having a heart attack or something like that. Um, and I think people like went from those, um, that's a point in time when people became very visionary about the state artificial intelligence in general and thought it would solve a lot of problems really quickly and sort of ran into a wall for various reasons and kind of went on the back burner for a couple of decades until of course now it's back. Mm -hmm. And then you join Siemens as a research scientist. Was it about machine learning as well? Uh, yes, it was, it was, was a machine learning uh, lab. Um, the specific problem, um, and that, that was a little bit more of an applied problem, was so Siemens makes buses and things like that that go down city streets, and they wanted to automate the navigation around them. With things we solve now with GPS, like you know where your location is, of course. But at the time, we didn't have that. There was a, a military system, but civilian GPS wasn't very good. And it didn't work well with cities. Um, so they're trying to do, develop a a machine vision where you, system where you would have a camera and you'd, you'd match it against images and you'd sort of learn from those and figure out your location. That was the basic problem. Um, it sort of worked, but of course, GPS became a killer technology that worked a lot better. So, uh, Was it then sort of like a Google Maps kind of thing? Uh, that would be the idea, yeah. So you'd have, have the Google Maps, and, but you'd also the bus would know where its location was and that would go back to sort of bus HQ and they would, that would be useful for routing and scheduling. So essentially, that's what we are effectively pursuing. I mean, autonomous driving was much, you know, that was way beyond our uh, purview. Although there were there were projects at the time, like, well, Intelligence Highways was a government initiative at the time. That involved things now that um, what we call smart lanes in the U.S., where you can go through automatically and read your toll. Like, that was sort of cutting edge. It's not, it's not autonomous driving, but it's sort of in that direction of sort of automating the whole driving process. Obviously, people have seen science fiction movies with robot cars or anything, but maybe there's a little bit of work in that direction, actually. It wasn't unthought of. It was more around robots than it was about passenger cars. But yeah, the, the beginning of that research was there. This is the early 90s, and I'm just thinking now, we are still developing autonomous driving. Do you think 
we will get there soon or it will take a long while such as not such as 30 years but like it will take a long while until we get to i, I think it'll driving. actually take a long time before we get to fully autonomous driving um this is less that's less a sort of technical comment like understanding the science comment and more like an observation of in technology when everyone says oh here's this thing we'll just work on that thing we can't do it now but i'm sure we can solve it soon those things tend to be slow. Like the breakthroughs on things where no one's even thinking about and suddenly someone does something else. Like, wow, I didn't know that was possible. That's really cool. So I'm a little bit like, I'm a little bit skeptical, let's say, that we can solve those last few problems. The reason they're the last problems is you leave them to the last because they're really hard and people tend to underestimate. So um, uh, so then after that, you jump to finance, joining GMO 1995. First of all, why finance and why particularly asset management? Did you show an interest for it? Before? Um, so no, no interest uh, before. I'd um, you know, never done any investing, never really even knew anyone who did in, any investing. There are a couple parts to the answer to your question. Um, one is like, so why did I leave Siemens? Which was, I'd, I'd done this theoretical work in grad school, which was fun, but I wanted to do something more practical. And frankly, the, in 1992, in a recession, the job market wasn't very good. So I didn't have any choices I would have liked. Um, it seemed, seemed interesting from the point of view of marrying the theory with a real world problem. It wasn't really working out as well as I'd hoped to. Uh, I decided I kind of didn't like the big corporate culture uh, quite as much. And finance, finance. I think fit my skill set is much more mathematical um, and less of a um, ex- more of an introvert business than an extrovert business. Let's say um, GMO specifically um, and, and investment management the, and the buy side specifically a little bit of an accident. I, when I worked for Siemens, I was in New Jersey, so I there was a, you know, New York City within close proximity. I knew people who commuted. Um, looked at some jobs in the banks and I was glad I didn't take one because I think there you would have been definitely segregated from the investment side. Um, one of the things going back I learned about when I was at IBM was that one thing I didn't like about that job is be, and I guess big companies generally is you can only be a cog in the machine. You can't really see the process from beginning to end, which is a little bit dissatisfying to me. Um, for the specific company I work at now, GMO, I had a little bit of a connection that I hadn't realized, which was that when I was in grad school, I went to a research group hosted by an MIT professor, which was mainly scruffy grad students and professors from the Boston area. But there's also this one guy from downtown who came in a suit um, who was described to me as a banker. I imagined him in the back office of some bank approving mortgage applications or something. And it turned out he was uh, the head of an investment team at the firm where I am now. So um, when I kind of randomly sent my resume there, he actually remembered me, which was kind of you know the start of the, the interviewing process. So I ended up getting the job at GMO in 1995. Mm-hmm. So then the move to towards finance was kind of like a rational decision um, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was an opportunistic decision, but uh, but one that was thought out um, as much as that could be thought out from someone who didn't really know anything about finance, so a little bit jumping in blind. <laughs> so then, since you had no experience in finance at all, what was your first role in yeah. the company? So I was hired into a group that um, was quantitative, and the, the gentleman who hired me, his name was Chris Darnell. Um, I think he kind of had a bias against finance almost. He also came from a non-finance academic background himself. So he's very welcoming and sort of had this view that, 
you know, talented people could kind of do anything and learn it. So it was, that was that was a very encouraging environment. In terms of what I actually did, um, we we used a lot of soft and use a lot of software at GMO. One thing we use is called portfolio optimization, right, that uh, takes inputs, basically stock forecasts and um, massages them around and thinks about trading costs and risks to come out with portfolio weights. We had a system that we developed ourselves. There was a bug in it. There's some particular test case it didn't work well on. People hadn't figured out why. So my very first project was to figure out why. And that actually a little bit harkened back to my IBM days, right? I have this old computer code that you had to wade through. I basically just waded through this old code, very kind of boring job, frankly, but um, found found the bug. <laughs> so that, that was my first success, I guess. Uh, then uh, I, I worked more generally on kind of the software that supported the portfolios. So just before we move any forward, is there anything that you learned during your computer science days that you still apply in your day-to-day job as a as an asset manager? Uh, well, I still do computer programming. So um, it's different programming, but it's clearly based on skills I learned. Um, and then, you know, I think of what you learn in a PhD program and kind of the, the rigor, the, the ability to just work on hard problems, the pre- presenting to uh, groups, that's, that skill set is something that I've developed, but clearly is rooted in those days. And so at GMO for a while, you were co-head of the global mm-hmm. equity team uh, before becoming the chief of the focused equity team, which is based both in Boston and London and manages benchmark agnostic, fundamentally driven equity portfolios. Tom, I'm interested to know what you think, what's to come in the near future in sort of quant uh, investing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and GMO's form of quant investing is is one form. GMO actually started as a traditional fundamental investing firm and kind of got interested in quantitative uh, techniques kind of as expert systems in the artificial intelligence terminology that um, they're basically trying to emulate what an expert in a field would do. So like you might emulate medical diagnosis for a doctor, try to figure out how a fundamental stock analyst works and try to implement rules um, you know, to look at the income statement, balance sheet, whatever they would do. You obviously couldn't do the soft or it would be hard to do the soft stuff like talk to management, but you could do a lot of financial statement analysis is very naturally quantitative. And that's where GMO and some other firms root is. GMO is actually one of the very earliest to do that. Um, the other direction that I think is has a little more momentum to it today, frankly, is kind of the big data uh, side where um, that's more the machine learning side, actually, where it's like, I don't know anything about investing, but I have a lot of data and I have a lot of stock return data and maybe I have some intuitions and let's see how it um, connects. And I'd say, if you don't have very much data, that's tough. And if you have interesting data that not everyone else has that you can act on faster, like when credit card receipts first became available to to managers and so forth. I think that's that's a pretty exciting area now just because there's so much data. Uh, the problem is like with all this stuff, all kinds of investment management, right? It's a very competitive industry. Lots of well-motivated, highly compensated people are working very hard at it, very talented people. So um, it's tough to get an edge in any way, but just the availability of data that wasn't there before, that presents a lot of opportunities for, for quantitative investing. I mean, I guess experience is needed to invest, but then you've mentioned data. I mean, question is, is it better to invest just only having in count data? Or another way to make this question would be, can you 
invest only using data. So I was kind of giving you the spin for quantitative investing. I'm actually not a quantitative investor this way. So I guess I voted with my feet. <laughs> and the way I voted with my feet was, um, I don't know, the data stuff actually is pretty competitive. There's a lot of it, but it's hard to get access to it in a better way. And a lot of the basic ideas are well publicized now. So um, while we are very much data driven and aware, um, we are actually dialing up in our group a little bit more of the traditional fundamental softer stuff. And just while we're here, are the rise of tech and the climate change challenge not two issues that somehow are antonyms? I mean, or do you think that despite everything related with the, again, semiconductors, shortage of various things, tech will bring more positives than negatives in the long run? I think tech will bring more positives and negatives in the long run. I mean, if you think back at history, right, there's always been something that's the new technology and there's always been, you know, a few people disrupted when the new technology comes going back to the Luddites and you know beyond. So it, it never comes for free in terms of societal impacts, but certainly over time, we wouldn't want to unwind the vast majority of technical innovations that have been made over history. And just, Wrapping up now, um, now that we've just started 2022, we're talking about tech, we're talking about semiconductor, we're talking about different sectors. Um, what do you expect from, from the market in the near term in terms of, you know, inflation, central bank, central bank action, um, obviously ge geopolitical tensions, anything. Um, what do you expect um, for, the near, for, for this so, year ahead? Uh, so inflation, I think, is here to stay. It's kind of, at the moment, largely kind of supply, of course, there's supply and demand has to be involved, but all the constraints of the, the shutdowns and the um, and so forth have really created supply pressures that are going to be hard to adjust to. And I'm, I fear that that's set um, an expectation cycle that now that people expect in for more inflation, it'll, it'll continue. Um, so that's, that's probably my biggest kind of macro type worry. Uh, we try to position the portfolio, well, we're primarily stock pickers, we try to position the portfolio in a way that's relatively robust. So we think actually over longer term, companies, at least high, higher quality companies, do have pricing power so they can pass through inflation. So it's not really long term as dangerous, but shorter term, you kind of expect valuation multiples to compress. So there's the, the short term thing we're worried about, interest rates are related to that, but it's really an inflation thing would be um, rising rates, inflation cause stock market multiples to uh, compress. Okay, um, I think we're gonna leave it here. Uh, Tom Hancock, thank you very much for your time. Uh, um, it's very early in the morning, I know, in Boston at the moment. So thanks very much for, for your time today. And um, um, I hope you keep um, enjoying Computer Science, why not, uh, every now and then. Why not indeed. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.